Yep, forgot to hit that. So um, let's go ahead and hop into um, uh, the book of Ezra. So we are continuing, sorry, we are continuing um, at the point where last week we talked about them being um, in captivity under Babylon. And so they were taken from uh, their homeland, the Southern Kingdom, was the last of Israel to be taken away. Um, and so the North, remember the Northern Kingdom was captured by the Syrians. And then the Syrians were uh, captured by Babylonians. And so then the Babylonians swooped in to the Southern Kingdom and uh, caused them to be under their captivity. Okay, and so um, that's, that's where we're at now. And so now we're fast forwarding about 70 years, um, looking at Ezra, a little bit over 70, 80 years, um, looking at um, the book of Ezra. And so now they're being released from captivity. They were in captivity for about 70 years because that's the, that's the time that God told them that they were going to be in captivity. And so we understand that they were in captivity due to their disobedience. But another reason why they were in captivity is the fact that they never observed the year of Jubilee. And it's every, every seven years, they're supposed, to, um, the land, they're supposed to release the land from its labor. So that means they, they weren't supposed to grow anything. They're supposed to live off the, the remnants of the, of the land. Um, and so they did not. And so they did that. Um, for about 70 years did not observe uh, the Feast of Jubilee. So they missed about 10 Jubilees. And so God told them, because you have not let my land rest, uh, I'm going to cause the land to rest. So he wiped them out of the land. And that's why it was 70 years they were in um, captivity. Okay, so that's another reason why um, Israel was um, in captivity is because they did not observe the year of Jubilee. Um, and you that I believe that was, I read that in Chronicles, if I'm not mistaken, um, about uh, the reasoning God gave them. And so now we are looking um, in Ezra and let's go ahead and hop in um, in Ezra here. It is on, let's see here. Starts on page 140 in your book. Go here, my electronic book here. Okay, so let me share my screen. All right. So here we are um, at the book, um, book of Ezra. And so Ezra, um, when it comes to authorship and date of Ezra, says tradition says that Ezra himself wrote the book with Ezra as the author. The date of writing will be about 450 BC. It is important, however, to recognize that the book that bears his name is only about him and his tenure as leader of God's people from chapter 7 to 10. Um, avoid a common mistake often by Bible students of attempting to associate Ezra with the first return from Babylonian captivity in the rebuilding of the 
the temple. Okay, so when we uh, put the timeline together um, with Ezra, um, chapters one through six, well, let me go to purpose first. The purpose of the book of Ezra is to record the faithfulness of God in the reestablishing of the Jews in the land, okay? Um, when we go back up here in the authorship, there was a, there was a line that I wanted to read. Um, it says that it is clear that he was certainly capable of doing so, of writing this book, because he is called a man of letters. With Ezra as the author, the date would be about 450. So, um, and so Ezra was a scribe. He was a religious leader. Um, we will see that um, under Ezra, he um, established um, relationship and the study of God's word under under his uh, under his leading. But when we read chapters one through six of Ezra, you will see that the first wave of them coming back was not under Ezra; it was actually under Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel led the first move back to Jerusalem. And so what led them back to Jerusalem was the decree of Cyrus. Cyrus told them that they can go back um, to their land and establish their, their religion and go ahead to establish back. And so, um, and so the first wave of them coming back was led under Zerubbabel. And there was about 50,000 people that came back um, the first round. And so under Zerubbabel, he established, um, he established the, oh my gosh, my mind just went blank. Under, under Zerubbabel, he established the rebuilding of the second, of the second temple. And so uh, they had issues. If you read, if you went ahead and read the book of Ezra, you will see that they had issues building the, the second temple, um, dealing with their cousins. The Samaritans uh, was trying to stop them from building the second temple because they asked to help out. And Zerubbabel told them, no, y'all can't, can't help us because they still held grief or still felt some type of way um, from years ago, when they were trying to teach the Samaritans how to worship their God, they Samaritans began to bring in all types of paganism, all types of other things. They established their own Pentateuch, which still exists. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And so from, from that moment, uh, Zerubbabel did not allow them to help build the temple because they knew, because Zerubbabel and, uh, and even the other Israelites knew their motive of, of doing so. They weren't going to worship the, the true and living God, even though they said they were, but history shows that they they uh, went on to the pagan worship and pagan idols and things of that sort. And so the Samaritans tried to stop the building of the second temple. And so the finally the building of the second temple took place about 516 BC there. And so, um, and so that what was going on under Zerubbabel, he established the temple and then under Ezra, he established the, the relationship or, or bringing back the religion of Judaism, okay? So when you look at the basic outline in your book, you see chapters one through six talks about the return under Zerubbabel. And then chapter seven through 10, you see the return under Ezra, okay? Um, and so what we should uh, keep in mind um, under important date, 
about Ezra, number six, the geography. So we're dealing with, um, of course, them being released from the um, Babylon, coming over to um, their hometown, Palestine, or what we call Judah, or uh, uh, sorry, not Judah, but Jerusalem, um, that, that area there. And so when we, before they went into captivity, they, they were divided into two nations, but now they were just one. They were just one. So there, were, there was no such thing as a Northern and Southern kingdom. It was just one nation. Okay. And so under Ezra's return, he brought back about 1500 people. Okay. So we're, we're about up to about 60, what, uh, 6,500, 65,000, uh, people that came back, um, to Jerusalem. Okay. Let's see here. The years covered by Ezra in your book, it says the entire, let me see here. Did I write anything else? Okay. Um, the entire, um, Book of Ezra covers a period about 80 years. There's a large gap between chapter six and seven when there is no record of, of history. And the background points of Ezra, in order to understand the events surrounding the restoration of the people of Judah to their land, several facts needs to be grasped, including the chronology of the period of the Persian kings who ruled during this time. And, and um, you'll see there's a chart that shows you the, the Persian kings um, that were going on during during their time. And so they were released under Cyrus. And then another release um, when um, Ezra released, um, when Ezra led the second release that was under Darius. Um, let me see if I got that right. Uh, no, sorry, that was under Artaxerxes. That was under his, um, his regime. And so, and also um, there's another one with Nehemiah. It was released under him as well. Okay. So uh, definitely look at, look at that chart there. Um, when you look at the people of restoration, it says it was the Southern kingdom of Judah that was taken captive to Babylon. And it was the Southern kingdom that returned to the land of Palestine. But we must keep in mind that there was elements of the Northern tribes present as well. Sometimes the Northern tribes are called the 10 lost tribes. They weren't lost in a sense of disappearing. The Northern Kingdom ceased to exist as a separate kingdom, but there were a significant number from the Northern tribes living in the South. And so that's why I was saying there's no such thing as Northern Southern. It was all kind of just a united, um, just one, one kingdom. And um, there were many um, from, from the Northern and Southern that stayed in Persia or stayed in foreign territories due to what we're going to look at in a few weeks with Jeremiah given that decree that you're going to be under captivity, you might as well go ahead and, and be married, live a life for yourself, um, go ahead and get comfortable because you're going to be here for a while. And so a lot of people, a lot of Israelites stayed in Persia and a lot of them had high positions such as Daniel. Daniel was like third in charge um, uh, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar and when, yeah, when um, actually it was Belteshazzar or something like that was under under control, um, he was third in charge. And then we come to find out after studying Ezra, we're going to look at Esther. Esther made it to be the queen of Persia. And so there was some Jews that held high positions. Nehemiah was a cupbearer and that, that was considered a high position. So there were a lot of Jews um, that stayed in Persia and stayed in, in, in Babylon um, when they when they were allowed to go back. Da Daniel didn't go back. 
when um, when Cyrus made that decree, Daniel was about 86 years old and Daniel lived basically all his life in Babylon and he stayed there. Um, so there's no record of Daniel um, ever going back. Um, he was captured about the age of 15 and 16 and lived basically all of his life in, in Babylon, okay? So that's something to, to really keep in mind there. Um, under, what point is this? Under section B, the people of restoration, if you go to that last paragraph um, before you get to C, um, it says, let me see here, what page is that on? So I'm give you guys page number here. Oh, your, your, your book is a little, okay, it's number different than, than mine. Okay, I see what's going on here. Because you don't have B or C. My, my electronic book has B and C. So, oh yeah, here it is on page. Nope, don't want that. So where is this in your book? And before you get to notable dates. Okay, so before you, yeah, it is number. Okay, it is a letter. So before you get to notable dates, the last paragraph there says, it says, it can't be said with certainty that all of Israel came home in the era of restoration. Um, certainly the New Testament times, the tribes were in evidence um, and all 12 tribes would be part of the final great restoration of Israel. Um, we read one part when he was talking about the lost tribes. There's a theory out there that the tribes um, after, kept, uh, after Babylonian captivity were kind of like no more. Um, the 10 tribes, they, they were kind of lost. But that's just a theory. That's that's a, that's the theory. That's like saying that um, there was no intertestamental period. It was a dark age. God wasn't saying anything. It was kind of like on a level of that. So it really depends on what you believe as far as um, the tribes uh, actually still being in existence versus them not. Um, and so that right there, that ten lost tribe. That's the kind of a uh, a Protestant view, just like. The, the dark ages or whatnot. So they weren't technically lost. Um, they were um, kind of scattered everywhere, but many, uh, there was a, a good number of families um, that came back to, to Judah uh, during the time of, uh, of release. Okay, so when we look at the summary of Ezra, um, you got the return decree of Cyrus, you get the return to, to Palestine there. And this is where we get the, the uh, Zerubbabel led a group about 50,000. Um, you get the rebuilding of the temple. Um, and then the, um, they, the opposition of them um, rebuilding, their enemies um, caused their work to stop for about 15 years, 15 years or so. Let me see here, there we go. Uh, 15 years or so they had challenges. Um, and so then they started to, to rebuild the temple after 15 years. Um, and so then the temple was finally um, dedicated. It took them four years. The construction was finished. Okay. And then um, from chapter seven, you got the decree under Artaxerxes. That's when Ezra comes into play. About 1,500 people um, were released. And then they came to um, Ezra. Um, into the land of, of, of Jerusalem. Um, let's see here. Let's see here. It says the people of the land were glad 
for the financial relief brought by Ezra. And Ezra was delighted to finally see Jerusalem. And then um, under the, the reformation of, of Ezra, that's when he, um, let's see on page 145, it says there, it says, unfortunately, the people of Israel were once again beginning to compromise God's laws, especially in the matter of marrying pagans. So they went back with <laughs> They, had, they still had the issue. And so Ezra knew the law and he knew recent history. He knew that if the situation was not dealt with, more disciplinary action from God would be forthcoming. It was a brokenhearted man who cried to the Lord and mourned greatly. Uh, many observed Ezra and came to realize the sinfulness of their sin. Ezra was the catalyst that made them to uh, made them do the right thing. One godly man who knows and obeys the word of God can impact a large number of people. Revival, which is the new beginning of obedience, came to the people of the nation of Israel, and so you will see that um, that that term revival uh, with the nation of Israel because when in order for someone to experience a revival, they have to be um, according to scripture, spiritually dead. So Israel was spiritually dead because God, um, God um, caused them, or not God caused them, but God allowed them to be um, put into exile and God was not with them during, you know, uh, even though God was with them, but he, he was not with them. I hope that makes sense. Um, as far as um, the people worshiping and, and obeying them and obeying God, um, God was not present in that in that particular state. And so therefore they were spiritually dead. And so um, Israel needed a revival to be spiritually awakened or spiritually revived um, or spiritually replenished and things of that sort. So when we hear revival in our day as a church, the church can never be spiritually dead because we have the re the the residence of the Holy Spirit um, inside of us. So we are not uh, technically spiritually dead. When you hear the revival of the church, is more of a more of an awakening or a realization or uh, realizing that you can be infilled uh, with the Holy Spirit and things of that sort. So. As the church, we can never be spiritually dead, and that's something to rejoice about. Um, but there's some times where we need to be in field. Uh, but actually, every day we should be in field, and that is not through what we what we know as these high moments in service and falling down and all that stuff. That's not being in field. In field with the Holy Spirit, show, um, Ezra kind of shows us that that when you're when you need to be replenished and restored. Um, you need the word of God. You need the word of God to revive you. And when you begin to read um, in Ezra and even in Nehemiah, Ezra, he stood in the middle of the town square and had the people to circle around him. And he began to read the word of God and they begin to agree and their hearts begin to be uh, pricked um, with the word of God. And from that moment there, kind of started the, the revival or the, the movement of them studying and, and reading the word and observing the feast days and getting back on track, okay? So that was what was going on with the people, the people of um, Israel. So any questions about that?
or any comments? I like the fact that it stresses that it's a new beginning of obedience because yeah. Holy Spirit does um, more than like, you know, like you said, rolling around is more living a life of obedience. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And I, you know, the one thing that I, that I noticed that um, obedience is like the main theme of the whole Bible, <laughs> of the whole Bible. God is just requiring for us to just be obedient. And so, and so now, like you said, a new wave of obedience, a new uh, awakening of obedience is, is, is what's going on now with, with the uh, children of Israel. So, yeah, that's good. Anybody else? I like the I'm refilling. Really oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I like I, the, refilling, the refilling part of it. And that is something I think that it is missing in, in, in a lot of the saints' lives to understand the only uh, the refilling of anything is going to come through the word of God. So no matter what we go through, no matter how drained we are spiritually or mentally, if we go into the word of God and, and, and meditate on that word, there, there, there comes a refilling. Yeah. Yep. That is, that is so true. That is so true. Uh, go ahead, Tracy. I am really struck by the numbers of the people that were coming back. I mean, when you think about the Exodus, you know, there were millions, hundreds of thousands. And then, you know, these numbers are like pitiful. <laughs> yeah. A thousand, fifteen hundred. What is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that, that really shows, cause you know, this, the author of this book really stressed them. The Israel came home, they came home. It was just like, well, no, when you, Really drill down, look at the numbers. Only a remnant came home, uh, came exactly. back. Exactly, a yeah. remnant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any, anybody else? All right, cool beans. So that is the, the book of Ezra. I encourage you to read the book of Ezra. It's a, it's a really, really good book if you hadn't got a chance to read it. Um, and so the next book, we're actually moving on. Come on. I told y'all, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to get this out a little bit early, but probably at 1030. I'm going to say at 1030. Um, let's uh, look at this chart here. So now we are at kind of at the end of the foundational uh, timeline here. So we are at Ezra. And so now we're about to look at the book of Esther that occurred during the same time um, of the book of Ezra here. So Esther and Ezra about the same time, about four to uh, about 500, 400, you know, that, that period of time there. And, um, and so I'm not going to assume that everyone knows this, the story of, of Esther, but Esther uh, was, she was a Jew and um, she became queen of Persia. Um, Artaxerxes uh, was married to Queen Vashti at first, and um, Artaxerxes was a partier. He had all types of parties, and he wanted his wife to come and entertain. His wife said no. He got rid of her, and then he held a, a beauty pageant or a beauty contest, and um, and uh, uh, Mordecai encouraged Esther. Uh, to to basically run, but then he told he told her, "Don't mention that you are a Jew," 
she won and became the queen, the queen, the queen of Persia here. And so that's kind of the, the underlying story of, of, of Esther. And so let's look at in our book, um, looking at the looking at the section of Esther. It says this book complements Ezra. Um, it describes a fascinating story of God's providence that transpired back in Asia, I mean, back in Persia, uh, while many of God's people were resettling in Palestine. So this was going on the same time of the activities that were going on in Persia, I mean, uh, in Palestine. So the authorship um, and date of Ezra says, once again, the author is not identified, but it's likely that the author was a Jew who lived through the events described in this book, his um, knowledge of Persian words and customs and his detailed description of um, the palace of Susa strongly suggests one who was an eyewitness. Based on Esther 9 and 20, many believe that Mordecai, the Jew, penned this book. Others do not think that the words of praise in chapter 10 would have been written by Mordecai of himself. But if the book was written during the days of Ahasuerus, um, then um, the date would be about 475 BC, okay? So the purpose of Esther, um, the book was written to show God's providential care for his people, even when they were in captivity, um, in a poor um, spiritual condition, um, because of the Abrahamic um, covenant, God would never allow these descendants of Abraham to be exterminated. He still blesses those who blesses Israel, and in this case, curses who curses Israel, okay? Um, and so the, the sentence that says, the book was written to show God's providential care for his people, even when they are in captivity in a poor spiritual condition. So that's that that um, being dead in spirit, uh, that's what, what I was talking about, that poor, that poor in spirit. Um, I, I read in some, some books that um, being poor in spirit is even worse than physical death um, when it comes with, with dealing with God, for God to have his spirit to be released from, from you um, is probably the, the worst state that you can ever, <laughs> ever be in. Um, and so I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, the basic outline of Esther, the royal crisis for God's people, Queen Vashti disposed, Esther becomes queen, Haman's murderous plot, Mordecai intercession, um, Esther uh, receives favor, divine protection of God's people, uh, Mordecai received honor, Haman's execution, the Jews avenged, Purim instituted, instituted in Mordecai, Mordecai becomes the premier. So um, this book here um, went back and forth um, when it came to canonization. Um, when they were putting the Old Testament canon together, um, this book was left out. When you look at the Hebrew canon of scripture, they do not have this book in their canon. Um, because of the fact that it doesn't mention God at all. You won't find the word God in, in the scripture. And they believe that this was kind of a fairy tale, not a true story uh, that took place. And so um, it kind of went back and forth. It finally made it into the canon, um, into the Protestant canon. 
but it is not in the Hebrew canon canon at all. So that's something to, to really um, keep in mind there. Um, let's see here. When you get to the special considerations, it says Esther's story took place in the time period of the book of Ezra. These events um, occurred between the first and second returns and therefore come between Ezra six and seven, okay? So when you look at the summary of the book, we, um, if you read through it, you, you read about um, Queen Vashti um, being disposed. Um, Esther becomes the queen um, about Haman's murderous plot. Um, the king elevated Haman to the position of great authority in the kingdom of Persia, but Haman became offended by the Jew Mordecai. In his anger, Haman decided to get rid of all the Jews, okay? So there was a decree that was out um, to get rid of all, all the Jews. Um, but when Mordecai came uh, um, to understand that the Jews were scheduled for destruction because of his actions, he persuaded Esther, the queen, to intervene on behalf of the Jews. So Esther began to pull on the heartstrings of the king, trying to persuade him not to get rid of the Jews, okay? So Esther receives favor. It says, as the risk of her own life, Esther approached the king. She asked him to come to a banquet and it was at the banquet that she would make her appeal. Haman was to come also. Um, and so then we read chapter, from chapters four through 10. Um, it says divine protection for God's people. Um, it says through a set of divinely arranged circumstances, Haman was forced to publicly play, praise Mordecai for the Jews, the man he hated, to Haman's wife and friends. This indicated that Haman was doomed. Their viewpoint suggests that an unseen hand of God had often moved on behalf of his people. Um, eventually, Haman was um, executed. Um, the king um, ordered the execution of, of Haman when he found out what was, what was going on. He ordered for Haman to be executed. And then the Jews avenged. It says the law that allowed the Jews to be killed could not be changed. In the Persian society, the law was greater than any person, even the king. And once the law had been set in, set in place, it could not be annulled. But another law could be instituted that could counteract the previous law. This was done and the Jews were allowed to defend themselves with no penalty um, for, for doing so. And then the Feast of Purim. Uh, this Jew, uh, Jewish feast day was established um, and it celebrates the, the Jews' deliverance from, from their enemy. And then the last part talks about Mordecai becomes premier. The king elevated Mordecai to a position of great prominence in the kingdom. In that position, Mordecai was used to help the Jews of the Persian empire. So here we see another um, Jew that did not go back to, the, to, to their homeland they um, excelled, they, they uh, went up the, the, the ladder. Of, uh, and um, so per, uh, Esther became the queen and Mordecai became the premier and he helped the Jews in, in the Persian empire here. And so this story here uh, kind of gives us an inside view of the life um, during, uh, during the rule under Persia and things of that sort and showed how um, Jews were living um, living during during that time there. So any questions about um, Esther or comments about Esther? Any uh, findings or anything of that sort? I, um, 
always think about that phrase that we use often, but I don't believe it's mentioned anywhere else except in the book of Esther, you know, because when Esther, when Mordecai was talking to Esther about her responsibility to save the Jews, and she was at first a little bit hesitant and fearful, and mm -hmm. he said, how do you know but that the Lord has placed you here for such a time as this? Mm. And that that phrase lives on for real for such a time as this. Yeah, yeah, you'll you'll see. Yeah, you see that in uh, other parts of scripture. But yeah, that right there was a very powerful um, statement by by Mordecai. Yeah, for such a time as that, like that was her that was her purpose to save the the Jews from being wiped out <laughs> in Persia. So yeah. That was a is a powerful statement there. That is a powerful statement. Um, any anybody else? Um, I thought that some well the Jews do kind of reference Hadassah um, her. So I guess where are they reading it from if it's not in their Bible? I thought it was like in one of the versions of it. It is. I think in the Septuagint copy, let me put this back up here. Uh, let's see here. I can't see my bars in a way. Hold on here. Oh, there we go. I can move. Yeah, I can't see it. Okay, good. Um, yep, in the Septuagint. Okay. Um, and there is in that copy there. But when you look over here in this far left column, it's not in there. They they do not have it in, in the Hebrew Bible. Yep. So that's that's yeah. You see, they they have less books um, in in their in their canon versus the the Septuagint. I don't think, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think the Hebrew Bible has the Book of No. They have Daniel. It's one of these. Uh, I'm going to have to find out. I think it's... Well, there it is in a yellow, number 21. Yeah. yeah. A shorter oh. version. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what's that shorter version about. But um, I believe it was like one of, one of their earlier canons. They did not have Esther in their, in their canon. So I'm going to have to uh, continue to do some research research on that. I wonder what they mean by shorter version. I'm like, this book isn't that <laughs> isn't that long, um, so I wonder what part they have in their in their Hebrew Bible. So, but one of these, yeah, I'm gonna have to do some more research on that. On that, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, hold on here. All right, let me go back here. All right, let's go ahead and hop into Nehemiah. Um, the authorship and date of Nehemiah. It says Nehemiah himself was probably the author of this book. Um, the date of writing would be about 425 BC, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of, of Persia. Um, when you read the book of Nehemiah, the book is written kind of in first, first person. So it kind of gives you that that indicator that Nehemiah probably wrote 
um, this, this book here. Um, the purpose of Nehemiah, um, when we look in, in the, let's see here, look in the book here, is that the purpose was written to show the work of God through a, a godly leader, Nehemiah. The book records the building, fortifying, and reestablishing of the city of Jerusalem. The book also reveals the beautiful balance in the life of Nehemiah between the zealous um, human efforts in planning and um, divine empowering. Okay, so the outline, you got the rebuilding of the walls um, and then the revival and the reform. Okay, um, the years covered by Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah covers a period of 12 years from 444 to 432 BC. This is based on the two time um, uh, notations in uh, one and one and 13 and six, the 20th and the 32nd years of Artaxerxes reign. And so when you begin to read the book of Nehemiah, I, I like the book of Nehemiah because of the fact that you hear, you hear the heart of Nehemiah and the fact that he was in a high position of being a cupbearer he um, uh, got permission from the king to go back to his homeland and began to, to build the wall. Now he heard about what was going on with them build, building the temple and things of that sort. Um, and the fact that this was a nation that was basically unprotected. They had no wall. Um, Nehemiah was moved um, by God to go and um, help build 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 the wall and so um you'll see the, the the strategy of nehemiah how strategic he is and how much of a planner he is um he began to go survey the land um he uh made a plan and he um had the people on board and began to um uh, to build and so um let's look at the background points of nehemiah it says when nehemiah Living in Persia in 445 BC, received news that Jerusalem walls were broken down and his gates were burned. His response was that of intense sorrow. It is highly unlikely that Nehemiah's sudden grief was due to Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem over a century um, earlier. Um, Ezra uh, chapter four, which provides some background information for the book of Nehemiah, uh, furnished a plausible answer. Um, this passage records the opposition of the Jews, enemy in Palestine from the days of Cyrus to the days of Artaxerxes. In the days of Artaxerxes, some Jews were uh, evidently beginning to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This probably refers to some kind of activity connected with the coming of Ezra in 458 BC, when in form of the building of the temple, I mean, building, uh, in one form of the building and the Jews passed rebellion, King Artaxerxes ordered the halt of the building. So right there when they, when they, uh, when Artaxerxes got the halt of, of, of the building, um, it says that he did not, did not order the walls and the gates destroyed, but the enemies of Israel took it upon themselves to do so. Hearing about this troubled um, setback of frustration and depressed Nehemiah, agonizing over Israel's future, okay? So Israel was dealing with enemies during that time, trying to prevent them from building, um, even though, you know, they were allowed to go back, even other nations uh, were allowed to go back. One point I wanted to bring up um, with the first release with 
with Cyrus, uh, the fact that Cyrus did allow them to go back um, uh, was a kind of a political move by, by Cyrus. When you begin to really study the Persian empire, they had uh, a lot of land. They conquered a lot of land. And Cyrus' belief, belief, belief system was it is better to, to deal with people who are, are basically uh, content rather than dealing with people who are discontent. And so he allowed them to go back and build and, and establish their religion. Um, not to say they, they weren't under Cyrus' rule. They were still under Cyrus' rule. They were still under the Persian rule. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, even looking right now with Nehemiah, Jerusalem was still under Persian rule, okay? Um, even though they were allowed to go back and build, they were still under um, the Persian rule, okay? Um, so um, B, the contemporaries of Nehemiah. So when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, um, Ezra, the scribe priest, had been there for more than a decade um, the scriptures are clear that these two men of, of God ministered and worked together. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they were contemporaries and they worked together in building um, up um, Jerusalem again. Um, after um, staying there in Jerusalem for 12 years, Nehemiah returned to Persia. Um, after an undetermined length of time, he returned back to Jerusalem in chapter 13. Um, he found certain sins such as withholding the tithe, intermarriage with pagans uh, were quite visible among the people. So when he left in chapter eight, that's when Ezra stepped up and began the, uh, the reformation um, of the, the worship of God back again. Um, that's when you get the story of Ezra standing in the square, um, reading reading the, the scriptures to, to the people. And so um, when Nehemiah came back, came back on the scene in chapter 13, um, that's when the people began to do what they know best, begin to worship pagans, intermarrying, and things of that sort. And so it says the prophet Malachi dealt with the same sins and which strongly suggests either Malachi ministered while Nehemiah was in Jerusalem the second time, or he prophesied during those days when Nehemiah was absent um, from Jerusalem. And so uh, we're going to be reading about Mal Malachi soon. So we're trying to um, connect the, the puzzles there, connect the dots um, about that. So um, Nehemiah's prayer for the remnant of Jerusalem. Um, so it says, when informed by his brother Hanani uh, of the desolation of Jerusalem, Nehemiah spent about four months in prayer. Um, he confessed the sins of Israel and prayed for the favor of King Artaxerxes. So this is kind of what started um, Nehemiah coming, coming to Jerusalem. He heard, he heard about about his brother, so he began to pray. That's when he approached Artaxerxes uh, about him going back to uh, Jerusalem to help re uh, restore. And so um, Nehemiah, like I said, he was very strategic. He was a planner. Um, at the time that they were building the gates and building the walls, he um, instructed them to have a tool in one hand and then have a weapon in, a, in another hand due to the fact of their enemies. We see the taunting from Sanballat and Tobiah. Um, that took place. Um, Nehemiah really had a heart for the people. And you see that um, Nehemiah was confronting some of the, the, the leaders of Jerusalem on how they were taking care of the people. And um, he, you know, in his boldness, stood up to them and began to demand some things for the people. 
um, there, Nehemiah uh, became the governor of, of uh, Jerusalem and began to, to help, you know, build it back up and things of that sort. Um, let's see here. You get, you see, in chapter four, you get the response to his opposition. Uh, chapter seven, you get the registration of the people. Um, when, let's see, under, under their registration, it says, once again, uh, once the walls were completed, thus affording some protection, Nehemiah asked one-tenth of the people to come and to live within the city. He also organized a, a mil militia to defend this, the city. It should be noted um, that although the walls were essentially finished, much more work needed to be done, both in strengthening the walls and rebuilding the city itself. Okay. Um, so when you get into chapters 8 through 13 of Nehemiah, it talks about the great Bible reading led by Ezra. So that's what I was talking about um, uh, with Ezra um, leading the people back, back to God. And it says that it is, a, it is a mistake to think that Nehemiah was concerned only about the physical restoration of the nation. Nehemiah was deeply committed to teaching the nation to live according to its constitution. Ezra read um, from the law and explain its meaning to thousands who, who gather. So now you see the teaching of the law began to happen. He, he began to do some, some hermeneutics and some exegesis of the word uh, to the, for the people, for them to understand. Because remember, they, they haven't had the word of God for over 70, 80 plus years. And so now they had to be retaught that um, the new obedience, what Timmy was talking about, uh, uh, was coming coming on the scene here. Um, and it says that under revival and its results, it says any genuine revival is based squarely on the word of God. And uh, that's what, um, what evil was talking about. The infilling of the spirit is only, it can only occur when, it's, uh, when you're dealing with the, the word of God. It says revival is a new beginning of obedience to God and his word. Any genuine revival will bring about changed behavior. These chapters record not only the confession of sins, but also a change in living. So it's not an exercise that you do, a moment that you have in church, uh, we're experiencing a revival, whatever. No, it is a change in your life, like, like a repentance moving from one side to another side and not going back. And so um, that was what was going on with the people, people of Israel um, during this time here. And so you got people um, in the land. And then when you read about the reform and its results, it says when Nehemiah left Jerusalem, much of his influence left also. So during his absence, certain sins were once again tolerated in the national life. But when Nehemiah returned, he zealously dealt with the offenders. Nehemiah knew that to tolerate the clear violations of the law will inevitably bring discipline from God. They don't want those problems anymore <laughs> from God. And so, you know, the, uh, the prophets um, and the leaders were trying to persuade the people to, to live, to obey the word of God. Um, with the reforms of Nehemiah, the Old Testament closes. There is no inspired record for the next 400 years of Israel history. The silence of God was finally broken when the angel Gabriel appeared to the holy place of the temple, announcing the coming birth of John the Baptist, um, the one who would 
who would prepare for the way of Jesus the Messiah. So in this last paragraph here, when you read this last paragraph, what does this suggest of the belief system of this author of this book here? In that last paragraph, what is this? What is, what is the author trying to say? I mean, and we talked about this, this, that whole silent period. God was not active among his people and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which many of us were taught growing up. I mean, God was just quiet. I said, dang, he had nothing to say. This is a long time. You know what I mean? Right, right. And so, yeah, now we see the, the author's belief system here. He believes that he believes in the dark ages, even though in the beginning, I believe it was this book or was it the New Testament book? He says that um, the information that occurred during the 400 years period is important to know. But he believes that that uh, the scriptures that were developed during that time were not authoritative. And so uh, we see his his belief system right here. OK, and so um, that is something that you have to work out on your own. Um, do you believe that it, I, I, I find it kind of weird um, that um, they're in a period of time when they're, um, you know, uh, coming back up from their uh, being spiritually poor and spiritually dead. And then all of a sudden God stopped talking. That don't make sense. That doesn't make sense to me that all of a sudden this guy, you know, stopped talking and they were trying to move back on the good side of God. <laughs> and then all of a sudden God stopped talking. That don't make a drop of sense. But that's what we've been taught. That is the, the Protestant viewpoint that God just all of a sudden just stopped talking. There's no prophets. There's no word going forth until the decree of uh, uh, the angel from Gabriel uh, about John the Baptist. So it's just like, okay. So that's something that you have to really work at, really do some research on and uh, develop your belief system on that, okay? Because you'll see authors who who will believe in, in the intertestamental period and then you got some who do not. They call it the dark ages. So um, any other comments or questions about Nehemiah? I just, I just think all of that is funny because I, if I'm not mistaken, like you said, the same Arthur has teaching on the intertestamental period or some thoughts that I remember when we went through it, it provoked us to the thought like, wait a minute, God wasn't silent. He was active. And then to hear him say that it's, it's almost like he his information, he got the right information, but he still decided, well, I'm still stick with my belief. So I'm going to throw yeah. this in there, even though I know I'm about to give you this information, right. which is odd. It's like, just leave it out if that ain't what you believe. So this kind of weird. Yeah. Um, what I found to be funny is that um, my my mentor met this author, uh, Paul Benware, met him. And um, he, he writes for Moody Publishing. So Moody is a college or something, or something like that. And so um, he, when you read his books, it's not the words that are coming out of his mouth when you talk to him. He has a totally different belief system 
but he's sticking with this agenda of Christianity because there are some things that he believed that if he put them in the book, that that part of the book would be rejected by the publisher. So he's basically writing uh, with an agenda in mind to, to get the approval of man versus his real belief system. And it's insane. They had this whole conversation. They invited him to, to their church and had this whole conversation. We're at, allowed to ask him questions. And, and his belief system is totally different from what he publishes in his book um, due to the fact that uh, a lot of it may be rejected by mainstream Christianity. So he's really just trying to sneak little stuff in when he can. When he can. Wow. <laughs> Ain't that something? Ain't that something? Uh, Eva, did you have your hand up? Or uh, I had, a, yeah, I had a meeting because I know you was watching the microphones. <laughs> but uh, I just, I, this is just, is just my sharing. Um, uh, and you was talking about personal beliefs and, you know, you read it, you know, what uh, uh, your belief system and so forth and so on. And so I'm just sharing my belief system, if you will. Yeah. But yeah. in that inter, I always get that word because I can't pronounce it too good, intertestamental period. <laughs> that word. Oh, right Lord, that's <laughs> that word right there. Um, you know, it, uh, I have heard over the years everyone's uh, idea or whatever about that uh, period. But in my reading and in my belief system and my understanding, and this is me, I'm not saying no one to, this is where I am, that during that period of time, I strongly believe it wasn't so much that God wasn't speaking. As much as it is, remember, God spoke to, through the prophets. Mm -hmm. And so people are so used to hearing somebody else tell them what God said. Mm -hmm. So as we start moving towards uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the 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 uh, the the gospels or what we what do we call that age? Um, we're coming out of um, the law into grace. I just put it like that. When okay. we start moving towards that period, if you will, uh, I think in that in that was a well, God just me that God was uh, 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 creating, allowing change to occur where you no longer we're getting ready to reach a period where you no longer have to listen to the um, hear God through the prophet's mouth, but hear God through the Holy Spirit. Hear God talk to mm -hmm. you. So I think that this was a transformation period for me, in my understanding, a transformation period coming out of the old into the new, because God was ready to do a new thing. It wasn't so much needing somebody to speak for him as much as God wanted to speak to you directly. So this was, a, to me, a transformation, a transforming period that society or humanity was going through. And that's mm -hmm. just my belief. <laughs> I like how you're developing your belief system. That's a that's a really good point there. That's really good. Um, anybody else want to comment? Because I know people's belief systems are shifting and changing <laughs> through these studies and things of that sort. I, I like I like where you're going there, uh, Tammy. Yeah, I was just going to say like the editing process with the publishing houses. Um, that's important for a lot of things. A lot of authors are kind of bound by that. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes what they wrote gets changed according to, like you said, the agenda of man and the um, Christian agenda. So yeah, that's kind of yeah. interesting. 
that his viewpoint in person was totally different because I think it happens more than what we know. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think so too. I definitely agree with that. And I always press the the uh, the point of these books that we're reading, please don't hold these as primary. Always go to your scripture <laughs> uh, as a primary. These are good guides to help you through and to kind of, you know, you know, take you through the word and all that stuff, give you a good foundation or, or whatnot. But um, as we know, as we are, are learning about the agenda of man, and the agenda of Christianity and things of that sort, we have to continue to lean and depend on the word of God. Like, yeah, because, uh, because of the fact that we're dealing, we're dealing with a whole system that their belief system is totally opposite from the word of God. So it's, it's, and even the fact that we've even discussed before that they're even adding and taking away scripture. <laughs> That's where I was about to go, Elder. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The the audacity. <laughs> the audacity. And I was I was watching a not I don't want to call it a debate, but they were just debating the scripture, trying to find a point. And the guy mentioned, like, this is why we have to hold fast to certain historical content. Because the truth, if they try to change it or not, the truth is in history, you know, yeah. in even the written history. So even if they trying to destroy it, if we can grab hold of the history of this stuff, we can hold on to the truth because they can't destroy it once it's known. You know what I mean? Right. The history. And then even that other class that I was, I was taking another class before and, uh, uh, and a lot of the truths that we have come to know today is because we were able to cross-reference with history on what we had in the word of God, you know, because like we, we've talked about, like men put this stuff together and decided what's going in here, what's not, you know, we got more scriptures than this. And now today we talking about a shorter version of what Esther, which yeah. is already, which is already two seconds long. So you talking about a shorter version, Lord, what they leave out her name, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like it's just a lot. And so it's like, thank God. Cause I know me and mother had a conversation before, like, Wow, like we I've never been a history person, but because I know how it for lack of better words, it upholds it can uphold the truth in the scriptures. Like now I'm more keen to it, like okay, all right, this is important. Don't just leave it out. It plays its part. Get the part of the whole. This is a part of the whole, you know what I mean? So yeah. yeah. That's good. That's good. Yep. Um, anybody else? It also, oh. it also um, reminds us that we have to have a personal relationship with God. And so as we read our scriptures and books um, in reading, praying and meditating, he will reveal things to us. Yeah. Um, and where to go and what to do in that. Mm -hmm. Yep. We definitely have to solely rely. We got, we have to rely on that about building a relationship. And that's one thing I like about when I'm reading Ezra, how he emphasizes 
relationship and reading the word of God. Like that is important then it is important today as well. So yeah, we have to definitely uh, continue to build our relationship with God. So thank you for that point. Um, anybody else? All right, cool beans. I got out 1035, a little bit over. So, but uh, five minutes was the, the chat part. So it wasn't my teacher, it was a chat. So that wasn't me, that was y'all. So so uh, I thank you all for, for uh, coming to this class here. I'm gonna pray out and then I'll see you all next week. We'll hit the poetry books. We're hitting the poetry books next week uh, for two weeks. And then we'll hit the prophecy books after that. And then we're, we're about done with the Old Testament. So we're, we're trucking through. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you, um, oh God, for allowing us to come together to, to read your word, God, and to study your word, Father. We thank you, oh God, that you have shown us in your word that relationship is so important for you, uh, for you, God, and that we should take it um, in importance as well, God, for, for us, Father. Um, and it was always the goal, God, for you to dwell amongst your people, to be with your people, God, um, to love on your people, God. And so, God, um, as uh, we have the complete word of God, we can see what pleases you and what doesn't please you, Father. So allow us, God, to um, take more seriously our relationship with you and take more seriously us studying your word, Father, for it is important and it's our, our fuel for living. It's our uh, food for living, God. Um, when Jesus, um, when they asked Jesus, uh, what, did, what do you want to eat? He said, the word is my food. This is, this is what plenishes me. This is what restores me. Doing the, doing the will of the Father restores me. So God, allow us to um, get that um, hunger, God, that um, doing, doing your will, being obedient to your word, that's what restores us. That's what, uh, what replenishes us, Father. That's what uh, keeps us going, God. So God, we love you and continue to bless us, oh God, as we continue to read your word and continue to study your word and be diligent in your word, Father. So God, we lift you up and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all. You all have a good day. Thank you. Have a Thank blessed you. week.